Welcome to CrossCast, a program where we discuss a wide range of topics. Could be politics, could be religion, or it could be absolutely anything imaginable, or it could be anything unimaginable. But whatever we do, we seek to glorify Christ our Lord. I'm Philip. And I'm Adam. Thank you for joining us today. So, once again, welcome to CrossCast. Okay, everybody, welcome to the cast. This is cast episode three. And today we're going to talk about salvation. And salvation is the cornerstone of Christianity, cornerstone of our religion. If you do not have salvation, if you don't have this thing right, you missed it. You missed it. Without salvation, Christianity is really nothing more than a bunch of rules and regulations and behaving correctly with no reward at the end. Christianity means of Christ or belonging to Christ, Christian, Christianity. And so being the people of Christ, being Christ followers, being Christians, salvation is the, re- the reward in Christianity. It's everything. It's the focal point. It's what it's all about. So salvation is the, the work of Christ, it is the death of Christ, it is what gets you into heaven, it is your, it's the only thing that matters. And too many Christians gloss over this, too many Christians miss this, too many Christians get into the, man, I need to focus so much on behavior and so much on, I got to get these rules right, and even teachers get so focused in that, oh, everybody's saved, everybody in the room is saved, we're all saved, we're Christians, hallelujah, so let's teach whatever, let's teach this other thing. And too many people are missing it. It's a big deal. It really, really is. So we wanted to hit this early. We wanted to cover this right now. We wanted to come right out of the gate, fear of God, because that's massive. And then salvation, because without it, there's no reason for anything else. There's no reason for us to teach you anything else. We cannot teach you behavior without teaching you why you're behaving. So on this episode today, we're going to cover what salvation is. We're going to talk about what it's not, which is a big one. It's actually a big part of this is what it's not. We're going to talk about a wide range of things, but to start this thing off, Philip has a, a very inspirational story. I've heard, I've heard it before. As soon as you told me you want to talk about it, I knew exactly what you were going to talk about. And it really is, and it's challenging. It's very challenging. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. This episode is probably going to be a banner episode, if you will, of the series of episodes that we've been doing. And Adam's absolutely correct. Salvation is the ultimate. If you die without salvation, you missed it all. I I can't get any more plain than that. It's already been said. But the bottom line is salvation. What is it? What is it not? What the Bible has to say of uh, the definition of salvation, what Christ did for us on our behalf, all of these things are so key. And I wanted to share a personal story of mine whenever I was a sophomore in high school It was a hot summer day. It was between my sophomore and junior year. The date was in late June, and I remember discussing with my friend Ray, and we were in his vehicle in his driveway, and I was talking to him about the Lord and asked him a simple question. I said, Ray, if you were to die today, where would you go? And he wasn't really sure. He he you know, said heaven, but whenever I asked him, how do you know this? How do you get to heaven? Very key question. He really didn't have the answer. And 
he went to church from time to time whenever he was in his younger years. You know, his, his parents took him to a Methodist church. So he grew up in America, of course. He went to church in America. So like what Adam was mentioning, a lot of people just assume everybody is saved. Just because you went to church or you lived in America, you went to an American church, therefore we're going to talk about other topics. But I went on to share with him what Christ did on the cross for us, the great exchange. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And I said, listen, Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died for you. He took the punishment that you deserved upon himself And in so doing, there's an opportunity for you to become born again. And we read about that in John chapter 3, of course, a very, very famous scripture that we have. And he looked at me with a little bit of, not, not total confusion, but he looked at me as if he had never heard that before. And I asked him, I said, Ray, have you ever heard this before? Have you ever been told this before? And he said, no, I've never heard about Jesus Christ and salvation on the cross. Now, listen, I'm not going to discredit or discount what lessons may or may not have been discussed at his church whenever he was attending. Maybe it was being proclaimed from the pulpit, but he was not engaged or listening to the message. And that's a fair assessment, okay? However, I can say According to his testimony back to me, he had gone to church many times, and he had never heard the gospel message, the good news, how to get to heaven. And that absolutely blew me away. And I, I said, okay, let's spend time in it. Let's, let's walk through what salvation is. And we dialogued for quite a few minutes. And I got to the point where I said, Ray, if you want to become born again, if you want to get this all secured right here, right now, I will lead you in a prayer. And of course, the prayer is not like it's a set of magical words, but it's what we call the sinner's prayer of salvation, a sinner coming to Christ for salvation. It covers the foundation of what we do to become born again, confessing our sins, asking for forgiveness, asking for God to send his Holy Spirit into our life, asking God to be the Lord, the boss of our life, and helping us to grow in the Word and become discipled. And these are the basics of a sinner's prayer of salvation. And he was reluctant. He said, no, I'm not ready yet. I appreciate it. I said, look, you don't have to go to church and go kneel at a wooden altar in order to become born again. You can pray to God. You can cry out to the Lord wherever you are. And I said, I tell you what, I'm going to write down a sinner's prayer of salvation again nothing magical about the words. I just wrote down the basics that I knew would lead him to the Lord and and repentance and, and, and make him born again if he prayed from his heart with true believing, with true dedication. And he gratefully took it from me, and I said, you can pray it in your bedroom tonight. If you need anything, give me a call. Let me know. And so I left it at that, and I went away thinking, wow, what a awesome opportunity I had with Ray to share with him and to let him know what God has done for him and for me, for everyone, that salvation is a free gift, free to us, because he paid the price that that we could not pay. And it was a price that he did not owe. And so this was a tremendous opportunity for Ray to become born again. Well, some weeks later, we went to an amusement park in town and on the way home, there was a group of about six or seven of us, and he was asking for, you know, someone to, you know, hey, does anybody want to come over to my house and spend the night? We can, you know, 
whatever. We can sleep over there and stay up late, like you know what teenage teenagers do. And I remember him asking everybody, and everybody had something to do that night. It was a Saturday night, and I said, no, I can't because I've got to go to church in the morning. And later on that Sunday, you know, the next day, again, this is all about two weeks or so after I had shared Christ in the driveway with him, there began to be some commotion among my friends, and I noticed a lot of traffic up and down my road, and and I, I went down to our, our mutual friend's house, and I'm like, what's going on? Some things are happening. and um there was some reports that there was an ambulance at Ray's house and that they saw a gurney come out with a, with someone on the gurney, but the gurney was covered with a full sheet and there was a body about the size of Ray that they were thinking. And I'm, I'm just trying to recall, you know, what is going on? This is crazy. And this doesn't make sense. And maybe it's the neighbors, you know, you're, you're thinking we're all young. We're all in the prime of our life. You know, <laughs> you think you're invincible at that point in your age. And so sadly, uh, we learned that our friend Ray had committed suicide and we were all devastated and so many questions, so much confusion, a lot of tears, and we just didn't get it. And I, thought back I went to his I went to his funeral and I thought back to just two weeks prior to that in his driveway and I said Ray do you want to pray this prayer to become born again and he said no I'm not ready right now let me think about it and I pled with him this is very important I'll even write it down on a piece of paper and you can pray this prayer in the privacy of your bedroom and and just have that moment with God. And he appreciated that offer and, and accepted the prayer that I'd written down on a piece of paper. And again, I recalled, has anyone ever shared Christ with you before? His answer was no. Ray was 16. And after he passed, I thought about Ray, where he was at at that moment, not knowing what his fate was. And I thought about him standing before the Lord knowing that he was offered the opportunity of salvation, God looking him in the eyes and saying, I sent my son, Philip, to talk to you about what Jesus Christ had done for you and what did you do with Jesus Christ. I don't know how that story ends at this point. I'll have to wait until I get to heaven and to see what happened with my friend Ray. But I was absolutely stunned that he just confessed two weeks before he committed suicide that I was the only one that ever shared Jesus Christ with him. And at that point, the weight of ministry, the weight of spreading the gospel, the good news of God with every person that I can became tantamount. It just took over what was important in my life. It's not about who's most popular. It's not about who's on what sports team. It's not about what favorite college football team is winning. It's not about dating girlfriends or going out to the beach or having sleepovers anymore. It's about eternity. Where am I going to spend eternity? Where are my friends going to spend eternity? And assuming nothing. So... That's where I really began to engage ministry at a whole nother level early on in life. And that was many years ago for me. 
this point in time as as we're sitting here recording this podcast. And I guess I, my question is to you, the listener, are you saved? Do you know what salvation is? My question is, do you know what the Bible says about salvation? My question is, if you are born again, are you leading others to the Lord and salvation? Can you? Do you know how? Have you ever done it before? Because it's the most important thing. So with that said, I want to go through some of the topics that I know over the years of ministry and discussion with many different types of people. I wanted to run through a list of high points and discussion topics and maybe some aspects of salvation that you never knew existed or just how deep salvation is. And I want to first start by saying, I truly do not understand salvation in its entirety. I don't understand how a holy God can have an interaction with a wicked being such as myself. God demands holiness. I don't understand how Christ can come and step in my position and take upon himself the wrath that I deserve and then exchange it his righteousness back to me and redeem me back to him. I don't understand exactly how that happens, but we do have the Bible that tells us the truth of that occurrence, the truth of that exchange. And so these are some of the things that we want to talk to, and these are some of the topics that we want to run through. With that said, let's talk about what salvation is not. You go out on the streets in America and you ask, hey, if you were to die, where would you go? And people would say, heaven. You ask them why? They're going to say, because I'm a good person. And that's not, that's not true. Or some people might say that I don't want to talk about it at all. And if I can just interject Irving Baxter's opening phrase for his radio show, there's a series of people who say, I don't talk about politics and I don't talk about religion. And then Irving's response back is politics determines how we live here on earth and religion determines how we live forever. I think it's time we talk about it. And I can't agree with that <laughs> beautifully put phrase any more than what I do because it's spot on. Yeah. So what salvation is not. In our preparation, you and I put together a, a very brief list of highlights we wanted to hit, highlights that we felt were important to talk about. And one of the first things we thought was important to talk about was attending church alone is not salvation. does not guarantee it. So it's not church attendance, and it's also something that you cannot earn. Just as a, as a gag, when we started talking about this, I Googled salvation. Just I wanted Google's definition of it. And what Google said about it was preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. And then under theology, it puts a deliverance from sin and its consequences. But everything about that is it, it's something out of your control. It's something out of your hands. Everything about salvation is something you cannot do. It's a gift. I think that's a big part of this is it's a gift outside of your control, something given to you that you do not earn, you do not deserve, you do not have any control over it. You're headed one direction no matter what, and somebody put a U-turn in and said, here's a saving grace. Here's the only way out because you're headed off the cliff. And that's a big deal. That's a big thing to understand. And what you were saying about people saying, I'm a good person. Hopefully I live a good enough life and I get to go to heaven because blah, 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 blah. And I'm so great. And me, 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 that's, it's unacceptable. It has nothing to do with what you, it has nothing to do with what I do. I don't deserve heaven because Adam is so great. 
Adam's ticked a lot of people off in life. Adam hasn't always been the best friend to his friends he should have been. You know, Adam hasn't always been the best Christian. Adam hasn't always attended church every single Sunday. You know, there's times where it's like, you know what? I want to do whatever this weekend. I want to go out of town. We're going camping, whatever, you know? So if it's actions based, I already know that I've fallen short. So it can't be actions based. If it's sin based, all are born sinful, all fall short of the glory of God. That's scriptural. So I'm already out of, out of the running. So there's no way for Adam to be good enough for Adam to earn. They say for anybody to earn this on their own, it's completely out of our hands. And yet America has the idea of it's just like money. It's just like a car. It's just like a house. It's just like anything else I want. I can get it on my own. I can earn it. It's like a pair of scales and you set the scales down before the judge. And as long as the side of the scale that represents the good deeds done in your life is Mm -hmm. heavier than the scale that represents the evil things in life, then you're going to go to heaven. And that's a complete and total misnomer. And I also want to interject right there. This is where a lot of our cults that we discuss in the church, for instance, the Jehovah Witness. And when I want to talk about a cult, a cult is something that looks like it's based off of the truth, but it's doctrinally offset. It's different than the truth. So it's very deceptive. It looks like it's correct, but it's not. So the Jehovah Witness, the Mormon church, or the Mormon belief, and there's others, but those two specifically, they're the most popular, but those two specifically, they set up works-based salvation. And in both of those faith organizations, they cannot guarantee salvation. You just never know. You can, I guess, go all the way out to the end on the Mormonism, and ultimately everybody earns and works their way into uh, a paradise plane or planet or dimension, if you will. But with the Jehovah Witness, they also say that you have to work and hopefully your heart condition is good enough in order to get in. Um, Same thing with a false religion like Islam. The Muslim faith, they believe it's works-based, but then they kind of hitch their wagon to the jihadi martyrdom action because that's really the only point that they see in their Quran that gives them the absolute guarantee that they're going to go to heaven. So it's like their guarantee of salvation is to die as a martyr in jihad. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they do for salvation. And all of these things are still work-based, but the Bible, truth, the Bible, where it comes back to the individual, the best that you can do, the Bible says, is but filthy rags in the eyes of a righteous God. That if we break one of his commandments, we break all. Yeah, and I actually just looked that up. I have it right here. This is Isaiah 64, 6, and it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds, all of our those good things that you do, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. In that polluted garment, and I don't want to be too gross, but hmm. with the definition of the polluted garment, that means a woman's menstrual cloths or rags. And so I'll just leave it right there. But that's what that represents. That's what God is saying, that your best still has to be dealt with. Your best still will find judgment from a holy God. He sees the inward person, so he knows the motive. He knows the reason why you do things. And even whenever you go forward to tell people about Jesus, it still may be with a proudful, arrogant motive that you want the glory. 
And even in that, that still has sin. That still has things that you're taking glory from God. And just like you mentioned, we are born into sin. Therefore, we're going to sin. And we also find in the Bible that if you break one command, you're guilty of them all. And so there, we're in a situation now where we are needing salvation, deliverance out of our mess. And this deliverance has to come from outside of us because everything that we do is going to be dirty. So we need a clean, righteous deliverer, a savior in right. Jesus Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 2, going along those same points, starting in verse 7. It's um, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's so awesomely put. Number one, you can't earn it. Number two, you have to come to Christ in faith. And it says, and that faith, even the faith is not of yourself. So you can't get up to heaven and say, man, look how faithful I was. Look how much faith I have. I'm a super faith Christian. I super pleased God because there's a scripture that says it's impossible to please God without faith. But even the faith is a gift that God imparted into our souls, into our being. And we can't even brag on the faith that we have because even the faith comes from God. And then you see the works show up at the end, after the salvation, after God has delivered us. Then you see that's when God brings us into the workmanship, when he brings us into his kingdom ministry, as what we would like to call it, being his hands, his feet here on the earth, the body of Christ, doing the work of the evangelist, doing the work of a missionary, and so on. So the works is an evidence of the salvation that has occurred. The works is not in order to get us to heaven. The works is a fruit. It's a product of being born again. If someone's born again, you're going to see the fruit. If someone's not born again, you're not going to see good fruit. It'll be a different type of fruit, which is a bad fruit. So people begin to misconstrued and mistranslate. They have a warped vision of the difference between salvation, which is a free gift of God, versus the works that come after salvation, which is our worship to him. And then that's confused. Oh, you're trying to earn your way into heaven. Oh, you're you're being good so you can go where good people go. That's to heaven. And that's not doctrinally sound. That's not scriptural. The part of that that gets me is the verse where he says that no man should boast. As former pastors, clergy, church people that you and I are, former worship leaders, former youth ministers, former everything that we've done and currently do. It's so easy to get into the track and the way of thinking of, man, that worship service was awesome. I did a great job. That moment where the song just, it came into that pinnacle moment and everything broke down and the emotion ramped up through the roof and everybody was crying and falling on their face before God. Man, I did a great arrangement. And then whenever I came in there with those really strong, appealing words, Mm -hmm. did you see everybody come forward to the stage whenever I said, run to the altar? (laughs) Man, that was awesome. Man, I did a good job. And as a pastor, as a church person, a clergy member, whatever wording you want to use there, reverend, um, bishop, very reverent, (laughs) um, whatever wording you want to use there, it's so easy to say, 
today was a awesome high five for me. And you don't ever say that. You you would never say that. You would say, oh, today the ministry was great. Today we did sound ministry. Today we did solid ministry. But what are you telling yourself in your head and in your heart? That's where the question comes in. It's a huge struggle with pastors to stay humble. It is massive. And that's what that's dealing with is that, hey, everybody is humbled by salvation because it's nothing that you did and nothing that you could have done so that you cannot boast. There is no, I'm a good person. There is no, I deserve this. Or I earned it. Right. And one thing that is a good reminder that you pointed out about the pastors, and maybe you're a pastor listening, you need Jesus too. I know it's a novel thought, but you need Christ. True. You're nothing without the Lord. And it's important that you remain humble, regardless of how many people you have or people that you think you need to have. You need to repent daily of sin, especially the pastors, because we read that last time, the last episode about teachers in James chapter 3. You need to make sure that your walk with the Lord is exactly where it's supposed to be. And do not become arrogant. Do not become proud and boastful. Look how big my church is. Look how big my church budget is. Look how many people are coming to my website. Look how many people invite me to come speak at their conferences. Look how much money I make in my church. That is not the approach that Jesus called any pastor to. We need to have our eyes on Christ. We need to be humble. We need to make sure that we as teachers, as pastors, as ministers, that we read the scriptures, all of them, from Genesis to Revelation, and that we get it right with the doctrinal teaching of God's Word. We cannot cherry-pick the scriptures. We cannot cherry-pick the scriptures in order to meet the needs that we think we see within the church, like more money, or more church attendance, or the new building project. That is not God's program. And I know that we as pastors or ministers I know this for a fact. The more that you repent of your own sin, the more that you pursue God in your own personal life, the more that that will come out in your teaching. The more that that will come out in your whatever it is that you're going to be doing. It will come out more in your administrative leading, more in how you plan things in the budget, more about how you impact the community around you. It's going to be more Jesus Christ focused, more anointed by his Holy Spirit. And how many times have you sat in a church meeting and listened to people just talk about what to do in the church and how, and hear somebody multiple times say something like, I believe God is calling us to, and then throw some grand thing out there. But because they say God is calling us to, everybody else says, oh, well, we got to do it. And how many times have you sat there and just in your head, just in your heart, you're saying, God, save us save us and just in what we're doing with your ministry. Like we're mishandling this right now. I also wanted to talk about what salvation is not. Salvation is not connected to water baptism. Now I know the whole subject of baptism is one on its own. Um, The word baptismo that we have means to be fully immersed, not sprinkled, but immersed. There's so much uh, symbolism that takes place there that we're buried with Christ, risen to walk in the newness of life, that it represents a grave to our old self, that there's also something about the washing of the water over the person going down a dirty center, coming up a clean, righteous saint. All of these are symbolic items. We also have the public profession of faith. You do this before witnesses. 
It identifies you as a Christian, that you are born again. It comes after the moment of salvation in a person's life, but it doesn't mean if you're not baptized, you're not saved. And there are some denominations that confess that. That's part of their belief system, part of their doctrine, and that's not true. We as Christians, we like to look at the Bible, especially about the thief on the cross. There wasn't time to bring the thief down, go and have a baptismal ceremony, and then get him back up on the cross so that way he can be with Christ in paradise at that point. There's people who are sick in the hospital on their deathbed. They become born again, and they cannot be baptized because of their physical condition, and they're hours away from death. They're born again. There's also martyrs who profess Christ, and they have repented of sin, and because of their profession of faith in Christ, they are now going to be martyred, and they never had the opportunity to be baptized. And the Bible says that the blood of the saints is precious in the eyes of the Lord, meaning being obedient even unto death, that there will be a reward, a martyrdom's crown for those saints. So we have different accounts of people who are unable to be water baptized, but they're still born again. So just because you're not baptized does not mean you're not saved, although we are commanded to be baptized. Well, and even John the Baptist, whenever he was baptizing in the wild, he told people, I baptize you with water, but there is one coming that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit by fire. That's right. And baptism is one of those things. Paralleling to that is communion. Baptism and communion both, I don't want to discredit them. They have their place. They are, I do not want to say ritualistic. They are traditional. They are also commanded and designed by God. There is an order there. There is a reason behind them. I do not want to discount them in any way, but they are post-salvation. They come after. They are part of the behavioral, part of the following, part of the this do and remembrance of me, part of your relationship with Christ. They come in there, get baptized because it's the public confession. This is the showing of, hey, I'm dying to myself and falling full bore into the salvation I just received, but it's outside of salvation. Communion, this do in remembrance of me. I'm taking the body. I'm taking the blood of Christ. I'm taking them in as he gave them to his disciples that night, almost as if like a new Passover tradition. I'm doing this to remember his sacrifice after I was saved by him. Right. It has nothing to do with the salvation. I think that's a big deal to highlight, just like with baptism, is too many people are focused on, okay, what do I do? Give me the one, two, three, walk me through it. What do I do? Do I need to come over here and, okay, give $5 to this guy, come over here and just walk me through the processes, whatever things I got to do through the temple, wash my hands here and whatever. Just walk me through the processes that get me there. And there's no processes. The processes in Christianity, the processes of Christ are just simply things of obedience to show he saved me and I am obedient to him, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the salvation process. Um, It adds nothing to what Christ did and it does not do the work for you. It's not a way to get there without him. That's right. And as far as communion is concerned, it's an excellent discussion, excellent, excellent topic. Communion is for the believers. Communion is for those who are born again. And if you're not born again, then we're not supposed to partake of communion. In fact, even the believers, if they partake of communion in an unworthy manner, Paul talks about there's judgment, and many people have even died 
as judgment upon them because God does not look down upon that act of worship with communion lightly. It is one of Christ's commands that we do communion in remembrance of him and that we're supposed to do it very reverently. We're supposed to do it in a manner that is worshipful to him, and we don't want to be lighthearted when we partake of communion. And that also, as we're talking about what salvation is not, it's also not church membership or church attendance. I know we kind of touched on church attendance a little bit, but it's not church membership. And I know that, for instance, the Catholic Church, they do profess that the Catholic Church is the only way to get to heaven, and that's not true. I do believe that there are Christians in the Catholic Church, but just because you're not in the Catholic Church does not mean that you're not going to go to heaven. The Catholic Church does not hold the keys to death, hell, and the grave. They do not have authority over the doorway to heaven. And so whenever we look at confirmation, going through catechism, going through the sacraments, the ceremonious things aren't what saves an individual. And you could even look at church membership in the Protestant churches. That, too, is not salvation. Just because you're a member of the church or of a local church or of a denomination, that is not salvation. We do not have scriptures that say all those who are a member of a church will enter into the kingdom of God. That scripture does not exist. And so it's not a hit on any one denomination. It's not a hit on Catholicism. But we need to keep salvation what it is. We need to keep everything in the biblical perspective. And so if you're listening to this, and this is making you uncomfortable, the only thing that I want to say right now at this moment is why are you uncomfortable? Are you uncomfortable because you've been trained up and you've been raised to believe certain things that you've been told by people versus what the Bible says, and those two things are not aligning? You read the scripture, it speaks truth, and then you talk to people who are fallible, and you're getting a different message that's contrary. Maybe that is a false sense of security. Listen, if you are not born again, there is no eternal life for you. That's not my words. That's the Bible. And so salvation is so important. That's why Adam and I wanted to discuss what it's not, because so many people put their faith in their church attendance, in their good deeds, in who they think God is, that God would never send anyone to hell, and especially me. None of that is scriptural. So whenever we look at the Bible, that's why it is so important that we read all of it, that we do not cherry-pick the verses, and that we do not only receive scriptures through other mankind. Mankind does not need to be our filter about what the Word says. Instead, we need to read the Word for ourselves and to accept it as full truth. The Bible is not fallible. It is perfect. It is God's Word. And you were talking about people don't want to believe that God would send them to hell, especially not me. And here's the thing. It's not a situation of God's going to send you to hell because you were bad. It's a situation of God made you, and he owes you nothing. You owe him everything. And if you do not... I don't want to say follow his rules, but if you do not conform to the plan, to the way that he set forward for you to come into his kingdom, you will not come into his kingdom. When you own everything and you answer to no one, you make the rules and that's how it is. I mean, period. Except that if you want or not, that's the situation that we're dealing with. 
And so it's not, you're going to hell because you're bad. It's you're going to hell because you're not coming with me. That's a difference. It's not you were bad, go to hell. It's you've got to go there because you're not coming with me. And that's your only other option. So there is no middle ground. There is no purgatory. There is no, I'll just go hang out there until I'm good enough to get into there. Where? Where? And how would you earn your way up? That's a very big thing to point out. I mean, you can't get up there and make an argument of, hey, I did X, Y, and Z. NBC has a show called The Good Place. And my wife and I watched the pilot episode. We wanted to see what it was about. I knew it was going to be a stupid comedy. Anyways, so Kristen Bell's character dies she doesn't even know she's dead. The show opens up. She's sitting on a couch in a room. There's a big sign on the wall that says, relax, everything's okay. And she meets this guy named Michael, and he's some kind of crazy archangel. And he's telling her, you died, but it's not a big deal. You're in the good place. High five for you. Come on, let me show you around. By the way, people get to fly here, and you're in this community of how many hundreds of people. When you die and go to heaven, heaven's a bunch of little communes, a bunch of little communities you know, so you're with this group of people and here's your house that you assembled for yourself. And here's your soulmate, by the way, he's here too. And here's this giant TV that you can just fast forward back and forth and watch your life and all the good things you did. And, and here's the point system that life was based on. And they did an entire show running around this idea of being a good or a bad person. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, how misleading is this to the entire world? How many people are watching this show believing like, oh yeah, look, righteousness is subjective. And it's the whole show is sent on, honestly, like just the, the fact that that show exists is misleading people terribly. And it's on a broadcast network to everyone's television. It's a problem. It's a problem with America. The fact that we have to be open-minded, we have to believe coexist. I have seen more celebrities than I know come on TV and say, I believe all roads lead to God. So it doesn't matter which God you're praying to is the same God with a different name. I've heard these things said over and over and over, and it's a very big deal to point out that's not true. Allah is not the same as God, Jehovah. Very different people. Well, very different gods, very different deities. And that's a massive thing to point out because I've seen Christians eating lunch at work with Muslims or whatever and just saying, oh yeah, you know, we both believe in God, so it's okay. Well, first off, we know as Christians that Allah is not even God, that it's a false God, that there's only one true living God. And demonstrating the difference, one of the differences between Christianity and the rest of all of these other false religions and cults is the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He stepped out of heaven and came to mankind to redeem mankind back to himself. All of the other buckets, all of the other religions and cults is mankind trying to ascend to godhood or to heaven. So we, as sinful man, cannot do that on our own. And we are in a fallen state. We are in need of a Savior. And all of the things that we have done on the earth is tainted with sin. So Jesus Christ stepped down to earth, and he became our sacrifice. He became the propitiation of our sin. And I'll get to that word a little later, but Jesus Christ came and he bore the judgment that we deserved, our judgment upon himself. And so if you, and you as anyone who's listening, 
if you reject the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, that is the unpardonable sin. That is unacceptable in the eyes of a holy God. That is what keeps you from being admitted into heaven. That is what separates you from God eternally. So the salvation plan has already been put forth. What I would like to do is to work through what salvation is, because there's a lot of misnomers, there's a lot of misunderstanding even within the church about what salvation is. I want to read John chapter 20, verse 11, through the rest of the chapter. It narrates the historical account of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 11, But Mary stood outside the tomb, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, this is a very interesting thing. Jesus Christ told Mary not to touch him because he had not ascended to his father. And also we just saw that there were two angels where Jesus' body had laid, one at the head, one at the foot. And this gets into what salvation is. Remember, Jesus went to the cross. He willingly gave up his spirit. He was dead, and on the third day he rose again. And he had to satisfy the wrath of God. So without the death and the resurrection, there is no salvation. And here's where we begin to see some of the details in the spiritual realm, a really true dimension, the real reality, I would like to say. Jesus Christ just paid the price by bringing upon himself our sin, and then now he had to go to heaven without being touched by unclean humans because then salvation would have been averted. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 9. Now, whenever Mary saw Jesus, Jesus said, Do not touch me. And whenever we see Jesus again in John chapter 20, verse 19, it goes on to say, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them, and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, and they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now this is key. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. 
Verse 25, The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my fingers into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now this is very key. In the beginning, Jesus Christ said, Don't touch me. I've not ascended to my Father. So there's business there. That's not complete. The salvation process that Jesus did on our behalf is not complete. But then the next scene where we see he's interacting with the disciples. He even makes Thomas come and touch and handle him to see that it truly is the risen Lord. So at that point, the mercy seat was satisfied in heaven. That's a kind of a fancy word, mercy seat. So in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of requirements and processes and ceremonies to do a temporary salvation, a temporary covering of sins. The Jews were given high priests, and these priests had to sacrifice animals. These animals could not have any blemishes. They had to do the sacrifice a certain way on certain days. All of these things were absolutely particular, absolutely flawless in order to satisfy God's Old Covenant, Old Testament plan with the Jews. Well, this was a foreshadowing. This was a prophesying of the true sacrifice to come, Jesus Christ, that he would come and die once and for all. And to unlock all of these truths, Hebrews chapter 9 is very, very, very key. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, we pick up a description that's very interesting. It unlocks what's going on beyond the earthly realm. And it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. See, this is starting to get into what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. This is getting into how we are born again, how we are saved, the work that Jesus Christ had to do in order to purify and win your soul for the Lord, for himself. We could not save ourselves. These are the things that Jesus Christ had to do. And this is why it is unforgivable for any soul to achieve heaven outside of Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. He is the sacrifice. He was the only one who was perfect, perfect enough to save a single soul, to save all souls. 
This is scripture. You can't earn it. You can't do enough good deeds. It's too late. You're already sinful. You were born into sin. And we needed a Redeemer. We have a Redeemer in Christ. Christ is the only way. And there was all kinds of other things that were going on. And so there's something very particular here that it points out. It says that he entered the most holy place once and for all. And this place, it's not of this world. He went back up to the throne. This is, again, where Mary was trying to interact with Jesus. He said, don't touch me. He had to ascend to the Father. He had to go up to the true tabernacle. You know the part of the Bible, the Old Testament, where Christians, especially in America, I keep pointing that out, but we go to church and we don't want to hear the Old Testament. We don't want to hear how long the tabernacle was, how big the temple is, what you have to do. We don't want to hear any of that. All of that is boring. That is a representation of the true tabernacle in heaven, the true mercy seat in heaven, the true holy of holies in heaven. It is a representation, a replica, an earthly replica, if you will, of what's in heaven. So if you want to know what heaven looks like, you need to go back, read the Old Testament, because here it is where God sends his son to be that sacrifice on our behalf to then ascend to the real mercy seat in heaven for us once and for all. And with that, just a little side point to tag onto that. So it's a model of what is in heaven. It's a model of the entire setup of the temple in heaven and everything. So you have this moment in the Bible where Christ goes to the temple, not the first time, and there's all the tax collectors, there's the money changers. That There's that whole situation. He starts flipping their tables and saying, this, my house will be a place of, of worship and you've made a den of thieves. But you have to look at it like this. He's been to heaven. He's been there. He's seen the real thing. And now he's here and he's looking at, this is as close as it gets on the planet. This is the closest my people know of what heaven is. This is the place they're supposed to come. And there's sin coming in the doors. It's personal. And it's not the first time he's been there. How many times do you think he's been there and seen it? How many times do you think he sat there and bit his tongue and just, oh, these guys. And it's righteous anger. It's not like, oh, because he flipped tables over and because he ran people out the door and because he was mad, oh, he sinned. He lost his temper. It's a righteous anger, and righteous anger is defined this way. If it is for the things of God, for the glory of God, for the purpose of God, for the cause of Christ, if it is for that direction, it's justifiable. And whenever you're looking at salvation, salvation is of the Jews. And if you want to understand what was going on in the temple, you have to look at things from a Hebraic point of view. Again, in America, we tend to want to run our minds towards a replacement theology. That's not scriptural. Replacement mm-hmm. theology means that, oh, everything that was promised to the Jews, everything that was promised to Abraham's people, well, God's done with them, and now that's to the church. They exchange the Hebrew people, the Jews, we call those Christians now. Um, Jerusalem, we call that the church or the new Jerusalem, depending on how it fits into our commentary at that point. That is not correct. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus Christ was a Jew. Jesus Christ obeyed all of the Jewish laws to a T. He said, I came to not break the law, but to fulfill the law. And so you want to talk about how many 
times did Jesus Christ go to the temple? Every time that it was required. Mm-hmm. He was a perfect Jew. And the cool thing is, is that Paul talks about it in Romans, that we are grafted, we are adopted into the lineage of Abraham. We are adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ so that we Gentiles can now partake of the promises of God. But again, going back to just what we were talking about, the copies on earth, I have it right here, Hebrews chapter 9, 23. So Hebrews chapter 9 is an amazing chapter. But So skipping a little further ahead, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So it wasn't going to be sacrificing bulls, goats, doves. You can't take that low level of sacrifice up to heaven. It's going to have to be Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Right. Verse 24 for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, Once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. That is salvation. That is how Jesus Christ redeemed mankind back to himself. He died one time. He went to heaven. He satisfied the wrath of God. He applied his precious blood at the mercy seat before God. And then now we as mankind, we must go through that blood. We must go through Christ. And when we do, that is whenever God applies the blood of his Son upon your being, making you spotless, cleansing you from all unrighteousness, So that with his view, when he looks down on you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not the wickedness of your own. I think it's really important to hit this also while we're here is when you have Christ on the cross, a big part of, I will say, American theology. It's Christian, but mostly in America because it's not necessarily the Bible or what's taught, but it's more of just kind of what people say and what's written in songs and all that. When you say, what did Christ do on the cross? Oh, he conquered the devil. Oh, he beat the devil. The devil was conquered before Christ got there. The Bible says nothing exists outside the will of God. So Satan exists inside of God's will because he has a timeline where Satan's going to be dealt with in the future. So he's not battling the devil. The devil is not resisting Christ. He's not holding back salvation. He's not restraining salvation and holding it or holding us in hell and saying, no, you can't have him. And say, you know, Jesus comes in and kicks in the door and give me all of them. That's not the case. You're in hell because you sinned and you went there. Satan didn't drag you there. God sent you there. That's a big difference because you're not conquering the devil on the cross. The work done on the cross was salvation. The work done on the cross was I'm going to pay this price. This blood has to go to the mercy seat. Like you're saying, the cross is about salvation. The very moment, it is not about conquering 
Satan, death, hell, and the grave, I have the keys to those. It doesn't mean that Satan was commanding them and holding them and saying, like, I have these and you can't take them from me. It means that God himself set the standards. Here's the standards. And anybody who doesn't live up to these, you die, you're going to hell, and that's the end of it. I have the keys of death, hell, and the grave. In other words, I've paid the price. I bought these. I didn't take them from the devil. I just paid for these with myself. These are mine now. And I'll let in my people. I will let in those who follow me. I will let in those who call on me to be saved. Ergo, those who are saved, those who have salvation through me. But I think that's a huge deal. I think it's a big deal that we point out. The cross was not about conquering the devil. The cross was not about defeating death, hell, and the grave. They weren't resisting. They don't have the opportunity. God's will alone will conquer them. You don't have to meet them on a battleground. And that, I think that's terrible theology. I think it's terrible doctrine to see the devil as the great opposition to Christ, as if he's resisting him powerfully, as if he's actually making, you know, like, Christ, you can't have those Christians. I'm going to drag them with me. No, that's not the case. Salvation didn't win you from the devil. Salvation pays for your sins so that God himself will not reject you. And that is a massive difference. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us the account of Jesus Christ going down into the depths of the earth. And it's Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 10 that I wanted to share. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So we have the record that Jesus Christ went down into the depths of the earth. People discuss what Jesus Christ did whenever he was dead. Well, his body no longer was living. His body gave up the ghost. But Jesus Christ still existed. Jesus Christ went into the dimensions below the earth, into the earth, and we know that he led the captives free. We also know that that's where he gained authority over death, hell, and the grave. That's where Christians love to say that Jesus Christ has the keys to death, hell, and the grave. What does that mean? He means he has authority. It means that he's in control. It means that he can determine who goes where. He determines who's going in and who's not coming out, and he's in full control. It's his setup. It's his system. The devil doesn't have authority over it. God does. We just read it in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, 28. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And that's why it's so important, salvation. The moment that you breathe your last breath on the planet, your fate is sealed. You're going in one direction, and there is no U-turns. There is no switching over. There is no, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong location. It's hot here. There's none of that. It's done. (laughs) So whenever we look into what Jesus was doing on the spiritual world, or in the spiritual realm, we see that he went down into the depths of the earth. He gained the authority to death, hell, and the grave. He led captives free. After his resurrection, he ascended up to the Father in order to place his blood on the mercy seat before God's throne. Then he came back down, and he was walking and talking with mankind for 40 days, doing more miracles just before the final ascension, where he went up to be at the right hand of the Father, where he is now awaiting And now we're waiting for him to return back as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to establish his reign on the earth. 
There's a lot of things that I think are glossed over whenever salvation is shared about the resurrection. There's a really interesting verse that I wanted to discuss. Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Remember, Jesus Christ can never be killed. He even said that to Pilate, no man may put me to death, but that I give up my life willingly. I lay it down so that I might take it up again. Jesus is unstoppable. You can't kill him. The Romans didn't kill him. The high priest didn't kill him. Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross to die for our sins in order to make salvation possible for all mankind to save your soul. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. We see Jesus doing a mighty thing right at the moment where he yields up his spirit. The veil was torn. What veil? Well, within the temple, there was the small room called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the menorah was, and the high priest would go in there once a year to meet God and to receive God's instruction. And there was a great thick veil. And it was interesting that it was torn from the top to the bottom as if God had reached down and tore it himself as if you'd rip a piece of paper in your hands. And this was God declaring to mankind that no longer would we have to go through these Old Testament, Old Covenant laws of this routine over and over and over, sacrificing animal after animal after animal in order to have a temporary covering of sin. But instead, now it is final. It is finished. And that's another thing. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, he said, to Tetelestai. And it doesn't mean necessarily it is finished. It, a better translation meaning it is paid in full. It is done. The debt is completed. And then we have this other account where these people who had passed away were now seen on the earth for a short time. Where did they come from? Well, again, we just read in Ephesians chapter 4 that he went down into the depths of the earth to lead the captives free. And they were down in the earth in Abraham's bosom, and Jesus Christ went down there, still proclaiming the gospel, still exercising his authority, and he gained all of those souls in his possession, and then took them to the third heaven after he had applied his blood on the mercy seat before God. There's a lot going on with this salvation. It's not as simple as we think. And these are the scriptures. That's why we don't fully understand how salvation works. That's why we can't sit here and say, oh, I have it all figured out. I know what the Bible says. I know that this is the only way. I don't fully understand how Jesus accomplished all of these things. He's God. I'll never fully understand God. I am a human. I am a creature. I will never understand my creator in his fullness. There's no way. But we need Jesus Christ. We need his salvation that he provides us. And going with that, this is... John 10, I'm going to read a few verses out of chapter 10. We're starting in uh, 25, and it says, And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, 
but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And I'm going to stop right there and just, we're talking about, for a moment, Christ teaching salvation is very different than you and I teaching salvation because Christ's salvation message is, Christ's version of the gospel is, come to me. Our version of the gospel is, go to him. Amen. But, Don't come to me. Right. <laughs> and so, but here you have this. I love this scripture. We, it's one of those that we always quote at each other back and forth, but we don't ever give the reference. We're like, you know, it says that part where you know, they're not taking them out of my hand. You always throw that back and forth in pastor circles. But before that, it says, my sheep are called by my name. They know me. I know them. They know my voice. And I don't want to gloss over the fact that a big part of salvation is a relationship with Christ. I've talked to Christians that are saved. They claim they're saved. I don't know. I don't say that to be insulting. I say that because I don't know their salvation state. But they claim they're saved. They attend church. They would never cuss. They would never watch an R-rated movie. They would do all these little things that we kind of draw lines in the sand and say, okay, this is too far. You can go this far with this, but not this far. And you can go, you know, you, you do these little dances around worldlyism, secularism. And they would do all these things. And they would claim they're saved and they attend church every week, all those things. But they were still left with a question of what does it feel like when God's speaking to you? Are you in prayer and you start hearing a voice in your head? They don't know. And that worries me for them. Because I've been in prayer before and have felt it on my heart where it's like, man, that's God telling me what's up. That's God saying this, not that. That thing you're praying, and I'm not going to say it's every time. I'm not saying, like, if you're praying, God's going to come in and give you the answer. That is not the case. I've had those moments. I recognize, I talk about that with my wife. It's like, I can't tell you what the voice of Christ in your life sounds like. I know what it feels like in my life. I can't describe it to you. No. Because the words I would use to describe it to you would also sound like a heart attack. Well, it's this feeling on your heart that... It's uneasy and unsettling. You're like, well, you sure that's not a physical condition? Sounds like you ate something spicy. But it's very important that you not see salvation as what you were saying earlier, the magic prayer, magic words. I'm going to say these things, and now I'm saved, and woohoo, we can move on to the other stuff. It's a relationship. It is Christ saved me, and because he saved me, I dug in. I found him. I didn't just pray to him. I found him. I sought him out. The scripture that you read there in John about being in God's hands and no one can take you out, that's not work-based. And that's the other cool part about salvation and Jesus Christ is that we don't have to continue in this effort to stay saved. Oh, I might mess up too big to where... I get thrown out, and then I've got to earn my way back in. That's not how it is. We're in Christ's hands. This salvation that occurs in a believer's heart, it's all in Christ's hands. It's not in your hands. The thing that you do is you come to Christ, and you admit that you're a sinner. 
you confess before this holy God, I have messed up. I am sorry. Please forgive me. You recognize what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. You recognize that he took upon himself your judgment that you deserved. And then you begin to ask him to send the Holy Spirit into your heart. You ask him to make you a new creature, make you his child. And the Holy Spirit of God comes in and he does all of that and more. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And I think one of the best pictures of salvation in the Bible is, you said earlier, we kind of mentioned the thief on the cross next to Christ. It almost goes hand in hand with exactly what Christ is doing. Christ is performing the act of creating salvation, paying the price for sin, making the way. He's in the middle of it. And right when he's in the middle of it, this thief next to him doesn't say anything else except for, remember me when you get your kingdom. That's all he says. But what he's doing is he's confessing, I know who you are. I see what you're doing. Don't forget me. Just, I mean, he just wanted to know that the God of heaven was going to remember him. Just don't forget me. I recognize who you are. I don't even know what to say. Just don't forget me. Don't leave me behind. And he told him, like, today you're going to be in paradise. Well, Jesus Christ looks on the inward. He knew right. exactly what that thief was thinking what that thief was confessing without the perfect words towards God, reaching out to Jesus Christ for that salvation. And that whole phrase, remember me, remember me when you come into your kingdom, whenever he's saying that, he's saying, we're both going to die in the physical. But when we step into the other side, the eternal, I want to be with you. Remember me. Whenever you come into your kingdom, it's that submission It's that I don't deserve anything that you have going on just by your favor, Lord Jesus, can I come with? And in that moment, though, Christ is paying the price. He's paying the price, and yet he's, its I mean, it's a confidence trip. I'm not trying to say he's narcissistic, but it's like, dude, I'm handling it. I got your back. (laughs) That's awesome. You're coming with me. Best words I could hear from Jesus. Uh, I mean, (laughs) and get the front and the top and the bottom and the both sides. (laughs) But literally, but but, I mean, think about this moment on Christ. He's in the midst of it. Sins on him. God has turned his back on him. He's oh my gosh. And yet this guy reaches out and he's not leaving him behind. He's like, no, you're coming with me. Don't worry about it. I'm going through hell and high water right now. I'm not going to leave you behind. This is for you. He's both paying the price for salvation and at the same time giving salvation out in the moment. Like, man, I'm doing it right now. Come on. You, you can be no, first in line, literally first in That's line. That's cool. It's cool. It's a, it's a cool Jesus moment. Jesus is multitasking. Right. <laughs> it's, it's big. It's awesome. It's a cool moment. And Jesus Christ, remember, we have all kinds of scripture that discuss the salvation, and we're just going through some ones that came to our hearts whenever we were preparing this. But I want to talk about that word propitiation. We see the word propitiation in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And that word is very important. It's vocabulary that has a powerful definition. And propitiation means turning away of wrath by an offering means placating or satisfying the wrath of God by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. It's a two-part act. It involves appeasing the wrath of God 
on one hand, as he is the offended person, and then also being reconciled to the sinful people so that the relationship can be restored from creator to creation. We also know that in the Bible it says that Jesus Christ, when he knew no sin, he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of Christ. It's that great exchange again. And without this propitiation, we cannot have reconciliation with God because God is holy and wickedness cannot be in his presence. Sinful man cannot enter into a holy kingdom. And so we are in a broken state of communion. We are in a broken state of relation with our Creator. And that's the whole point of Jesus Christ, is that he came to redeem us back to himself. And it's very important to understand the role that Jesus Christ played in order to get you into heaven eternally, instead of you dying in your sins and being eternally separated from our God. Nobody wants to die and go to hell. I don't care what they say in this moment, in this life. If people who are young and dumb saying hell is cool, that's where we're going to have a party, you don't know what you're talking about. That is not true. If you die and you find yourself in hell, you will eternally regret it. You don't want to die in your sin and go to hell and be separated from the Lord. You do not want to do that. It is awful, awful. There are no words to describe how awful it will be in hell. And on the contrary, you cannot even begin to conceive how awesome heaven is going to be. Eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor even entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. That's why I always tell the Christian believers, think big, because whatever you're thinking, it's going to be bigger. Right. You want to go to heaven. You want to be reunited with your maker. You want to be in his holy presence. You want to be with the fellowship of redeemed believers, the saints of God. You want to be before his throne worshiping him. You want to be a part of his kingdom. You want to be a part of his eternal plan. You want to see the new heavens, the new earth, be a member of the new Jerusalem, you want to be a part of Christ's kingdom. Jesus Christ is the only way. That's also one of those things of people are spending their life right now, at least in America. I'll speak about America because I live here. I'm educated on it. Um, people are spending their life trying to build a kingdom of their own. They're trying to build an empire. They're trying to build, I have to have a castle of a house. I got to have nicest, most expensive cars. I got to have safes full of money. I got to have fill in the blank of whatever your heart desires. And we're trying to build all this for ourselves here. And I've heard a lot of pastors teach about where's the line drawn? When does it become idolatry? Because your money will be, especially in America, your money will become an idol. It will become something that means more to you than your salvation. It will become something that when pitted against the saving work of Christ, you will choose what it is that you're working for yourself. And people lose that kingdom mindset that you're talking about, that idea of looking forward to Christ's kingdom, which is what salvation's all about. It's about getting there in the end. It's about spending eternity with God, spending eternity with Christ, spending eternity there. It's about that, but people lose that mindset because everybody feels like, oh, I'm Superman. 
Everybody has an immortal mindset. Yeah, I'm going to die one day. We all die, right? But it's going to be years from now. I got time and we can push anything off. Anything can be delayed. And it becomes an issue of while I'm delaying it, what can I store up for myself here in this life? And everything in the Bible teaches, not to go too far with this, but everything in the Bible teaches store up treasures in heaven. But even treasures in heaven come secondary to with salvation. And because that's important, because why would you want to send treasures up to heaven and then you don't make it? All your goods are up there, right? (laughs) But then you didn't make it. That'd be crazy. And if it is most important, then we as believers need to be communicating with others in the world to make certain, to make sure that they are saved, that they are going to go to heaven, that they know what salvation is. If you claim to be a believer, I want to know, are you evangelizing? Are you leading people to the Lord? Are you sharing the salvation message of Jesus Christ? It's a very important mission that we are given by the Lord. Whenever you decide to engage an individual, there's different types of conversations. Some people say, well, first you want to develop the relationship with them, and then you ease into, I'm not going to prescribe anything of that sort, any type of program, any type of how-to per se, other than scripture. And I like certain strategies. I like certain methods that I feel comfortable with, but it's all based off of scripture. Not saying that the way of the master created this strategy, because I think it's before it's in the Bible, but the way of the master definitely brought it to the forefront and popularized it in modern Christianity today. But you take someone through the Ten Commandments, ask them if they think that they're a good person, do you think that they're good enough? And they walk through the Ten Commandments, and and people think that they have fulfilled all Ten Commandments, and that's just 10 of the 613, by the way, in order to be perfect to get into heaven. And, well, you know, have you ever committed adultery? Then Jesus said, if you've lusted after a woman, that that's the same. Have you ever committed murder? No, I've never killed anybody. Well, the hatred in the heart is as murder. Have you ever put anything before God? Idolatry. And we could go all the way down this. Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever stolen anything, even the smallest item? And then so you quickly realize that you've broken all of the commandments. And if God is a perfect judge... If God is going to use his law to judge you with, where do you stand? Guilty or not guilty? And it's probably going to be guilty, right? That's the answer, yes. But it's the person that you're speaking with about their state, their sinful state. And if God is real, if the Bible is real, how will they earn their way into heaven, a holy heaven, ruled and reigned over by a holy God, if they're not holy themselves? And that's where you begin to talk about what Jesus Christ did for them, that Jesus Christ stepped in and took the penalty, took the wrath of God that we deserve. All sin must be judged, all of it. All sin will bring the wrath of God. And so Jesus Christ comes in and takes that wrath on your behalf. And that's some of how I personally like to share Christ with people. Um, There's other methods. There's the Romans road that Adam is going to share with us here. And and truly, whatever it is that you do in sharing Jesus with other people around you, just make sure that it's scriptural. Make sure that you're not watering anything down or adding anything to what salvation is. And that's the key. Right. And the Romans road is just a series of scriptures in Romans that over the past 
few years, over time, Christians have comprised and said, okay, these highlight scriptures, you can put them in this order, and it explains being saved very easily and very quickly. So I'm just going to read through these just back to back to back, and these are all in the book of Romans, and I will give you the references as I go. The first is Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the second would be 5.8, But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Next is 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The fourth is chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the last is chapter 10, verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And those really short but very potent scriptures are an easy way for some to share what salvation is. It includes the penalty of sin. It includes that Jesus Christ is the way, the gift of salvation is with him, and then the point of confession and engaging and believing upon Jesus Christ towards salvation. And there's all kinds of other scriptures that are used. John chapter 3, the exchange between Jesus Christ and Nicodemus, and that's where we get the term born again. Nicodemus was confused when Jesus told him that in order to enter into the kingdom that a man must be born again. Nicodemus could not figure this out. How do you go back into your mother's womb? And it's, no, it's a spiritual rebirth. That's where it's born again, because everybody was already born. So, You have to be born twice in order to get into heaven. Just because you're born once doesn't guarantee your trip to heaven. It's born again in the spiritual sense. And so there's many different scriptures. All of them agree. All of them are accurate. And you just need to make sure that as you present the gospel to the listener, that you're not leading them astray and giving them some sort of false sense of hope that, oh, because they listen to you, they think that that's it. That's all they got to do, they, you know, and then they're in heaven. You better make sure that you say it correctly. You better make sure that the word is delivered in those moments of salvation. One of the things that I want to point out, I look at different church services, and salvation is the most important part of the service and the way of getting people to heaven. I mean, that's where decisions are made. That's where the prayer of salvation is rendered. And that's where souls are born again. You don't go to heaven because you heard an amazing worship song. You don't go to heaven because you heard an amazing narrator read from the pulpit scripture. You don't go to heaven because there was a great donut fellowship in the foyer. You don't go to heaven because you tithed your money to the church or you went forward and pledged your membership. It's whenever the soul engages God and you cry out to the Lord in repentance in that prayer of salvation. And one of the things that I am personally careful whenever I may do or lead what we call an altar call, in short, that's basically the front of the stage where the pastor or the teacher is standing is called an altar, if you will. You come forward to the altar, so you're calling people to the altar to come and pray. So in America, we say altar call. But basically, it means that you're appealing to the congregation who's attending in the church to come forward and that we are going to pray 
and that may include salvation. You know, you can go forward for other types of prayers of repentance or healing or spiritual growth or just whatever the case may be, but we're talking about salvation here. And I'm careful in how I invite people to make a decision. I like to say it's a time of decision. It's a time for when the souls that are listening to the message are now going to decide what they're going to do. You can reject Christ or you can embrace Christ. So it's a time of decision and then, of course, action. I'm also careful not to say, come forward and accept Jesus, because then we don't want the listener to sit and think of whether or not Jesus is acceptable, because now the roles begin to reverse as if we are judging Jesus. Jesus, yes, I think I accept him. I think his work was acceptable. I think I will accept Jesus into my life along with all of the other things that I'm doing. So I think I will make room for Jesus in my life, but make no change. He's just an addition. So I think we need to be careful when we say accept Jesus into your heart. Jesus accepts us into his kingdom. Jesus accepts us into his presence. So instead, it's will you come and repent of sin? Will you come and confess your sins to the Lord? Will you come and ask him to forgive you? So there's a difference there. And again, look at salvation from a biblical point of view. Make sure that you're sharing it correctly. Now, this doesn't need to scare any Christian out there from sharing Jesus Christ with those around them, because we need to. And listen, Jesus Christ, God himself, will give you grace and mercy where you have mistakes, where you mess up. I've messed up. I've messed up from the pulpit before congregations trying to win souls to the Lord. And and I stumble, I misquote things, I mess up in my own humanness. But Jesus Christ, he makes sure that souls are saved. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one that saves us, not how well the, the teacher from the pulpit narrated the message. And you and I have both been parts of altar calls, times of decision, however you want to word it. I've seen it on the other side where I'm the guy leading worship while you're the guy, because we've done this together, while you're the guy saying, come experience Jesus in the moment. I'm the guy on stage doing music and leading a song and selecting that song in that moment. And there's a lot of, I don't want to go too far with this because it's a little bit of a rabbit hole, but there's that moment when you're getting ready for that and you're choosing your song. What song am I going to play during this moment. It's got to be a moving song. It's got to be, I don't want to say emotional, but it's got to be stirring. It's got to really go with what was taught. And there was a song we used to sing called Surrender, and it just said, and I surrender all to you, all to you. That's really all the chorus said. Um, The verses said, I'm giving you my heart and all that is within. I'm laying them down for the sake of you, my king. And it, it was great wording. It was wonderful wording. And songs like that work so well in times of decision. They really, really do. And it's so easy to be caught up in the, uh, the emotion of those moments and be caught up in the, the call in that moment when you know somebody like yourself is saying, come up here and receive salvation. People go forward and they receive salvation. The song's playing and it's a great moment. It, all, it seems like all the, everything's coming together at this one point. It's a perfect ending to an entire service not to make light of it. I don't want to neglect to say, because I've seen people in those moments come and make decisions. I've seen people come forward crying and weeping and pleading. And then 
very quickly go on as if it never happened. And there's a parable in the Bible about that, where there's, he talks about seeds that were sowed and how some fell into good soil and became good plants. Others came into rocky soil, sprouted up, and then died out quickly. I've seen people come forward very passionate at that moment, and then there's no follow-up. There's no relationship with Christ on the backside. There's no continuation of that moment. There's nothing that follows. It's just a highlight moment. Well, that's the part where salvation is not based on emotions because people can have an emotional experience. Now, salvation can be emotional. That can be an effect of salvation occurring, of a true repentant heart, but it's not tangent. Did you have an emotional moment? Well, if you didn't, that means that it wasn't real. Right. So whenever we're in the church setting, a service, and we're going through an altar call, and we're looking, we're appealing to people to come forward and to become born again, you're absolutely right. It's not about tears shed. It's not about magical words spoken by the pastor. It's not about repeating those words. It's about that individual truly crying out to the Lord, truly praying to God directly in repentance, asking to be born again, asking to be made whole, asking to be saved, asking for the blood of Christ to be applied upon their lives. And Jesus Christ is the only way. And people can pray wherever they are. It doesn't matter. You don't have to go to church to become born again, but you do have to engage God. You have to engage God. You have to cry out to Him. You have to pray to Him. And the cool thing is is that He can read your mind. He does know what you're thinking. So it doesn't mean you even if you can't speak, even if you can't use your voice box, your larynx, your your mouth, your tongue, your lips in order to form the words audibly. That's not a requirement for salvation either. He knows the inward of your heart. He knows what's in your soul, what you are crying out to him. That is the absolute cool thing. But Jesus Christ is the only way. He's, it's not through a church, it's not through a pastor, it's not through a ministry, it's not through a membership, it's not through works, but it's through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. This is John 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those articles are definite. They're not indefinite. He's not a way, a truth, or a life. It's the. He's the only way. He's the mediator. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And we have to go to him. So with that said, I want to appeal to the Christian. Do the work of the evangelist. Spread the good news, the gospel. The good news is is that souls do not have to go to hell, but that souls can gain citizenship to the kingdom of God, and it's through Jesus Christ. And make certain that you use the Bible in your appeal for salvation. And if you're listening 
and you find yourself wondering if you're even saved, if you're born again, I cannot appeal any stronger to you to become born again right now. Tomorrow is not promised to you. Whenever you pass from this life and you step into eternity, it's too late. There's no redos. There's no fixing things. It's over. And you want to know that you are saved. You can't afford not to. And so what I would like to do is I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And if you do not know Christ or if you don't know that you're born again, but you want to know that you know that you know, you want to have that peace then let these words be a prayer from your heart to God. Again, they're not magical, but it's an appeal to our holy God that he would save you. So let these words be your prayer, and you can repeat out loud, or you can just pray silently, but these words need to come from your heart. Dear God, I come to you a sinner, and I'm sorry for all of my sins. I repent of all of my wickedness. I thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross, for dying for me. That you took upon yourself all of the judgment, the wrath of God that I deserve. I recognize that you shed your blood for me. I ask that you would make me the righteousness of God through your shed blood. I ask that you would save my soul. Give me your Holy Spirit. Make me your child. Help me to grow in your word. Help me to run and flee from temptation. Let my life glorify you. May your Holy Spirit be in my heart and lead and guide and direct me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for making me your child. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I'd like to welcome you into the kingdom of God. I encourage you to get a Bible. I like the New King James Version personally. Read the Gospel of John, read Romans, and get familiar with the Word. Don't be afraid to read the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation. Find a good Bible-believing church, get involved, make sure that it's biblically based and has sound doctrine. And it's only just begun. And I hope and pray that you rest well, knowing that you are in God's hands. So again, I thank you for listening to this episode of Salvation. It is the most important thing. You cannot afford to mess it up. And we look forward to discussing more aspects of salvation, what it means to be born again in other episodes, because it's so central to Christianity. But I appreciate your time, and we ask that you pray for us as we continue to move forward in these casts. So until next time, may you be growing in the Lord, and we'll see you then.
Um, well, you're gonna have to get rid of this whole fun section. Anyway. I don't care. I do it all the time. <sighs> yeah, you like all that editing, don't you? No, I don't. Starting at five twenty. See what time we finish. Okay, so. In my head, right now, just you, know, you gotta not do that. I heard every little. Yeah, well, why don't you cup. quit clearing your throat where it's hideous? Quit clicking that pen. Yeah, let me click that open. All right. Um, in my head, what's happening is I'm hearing like or anything unimaginable. Like I'm hearing the intro and like. <laughs> okay, welcome to the. You know, that's where I'm at. I'm trying to be like, how's this going to sound coming out of the intro? Doesn't even matter, dude. I know. Anyways. <gasps> Man, really? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to. I just got that, that tingle from it. That's ridiculous. All right. You're going to listen to that later and be like, you did that all night. 15 of them. Still got this. Dude, you should see the clicks on the screen. It's beep, 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 little spikes <laughs> running down the screen. Like, just visually, I can look at it and be like, that's the pin clicking. Well, there's a solid 60 seconds of nothing. Um, actually, it's a minute 56. We're at two minutes of Time nothing. Time flies when you're doing nothing. Right. All right, you ready? <clears throat> I'm turning into Cracker, man. Me, 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 me. Cantaloupe, watermelon, cantaloupe, watermelon. You guys get my, my tea with honey? <laughs> I need my camel. You need a throat coat? <laughs> throat coat, yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> throat coat. Oh. Sound like a goat just died. Ooh, feel the cold air rushing. Dude, throat coat. He was obsessed with that. Tea with honey and throat coat. Uh, okay. <laughs> I feel like we got all the laughing now. Yeah, now now we got all of the uh, adolescent out. Oh, that was fun. Right. Um, something once I started. There you go. You're a loud dude. I heard my name the whole way up. And so I want to ask the question to every believer: If you claim to be a, if you be a believer. 